0: Hello, everyone. You are listening to the Rise Real Estate Investing Podcast with your host Austin Yay and
1: Mayu. What's going on, everyone? It's great to be back here. Austin did a pretty shitty preamble last time, but we're not going to let that happen again. It's because I
0: actually <laughs> forgot my mic.
1: I, <laughs> people probably
0: noticed, but like the audio was just so tuned down in that one.
1: <laughs> what's going on with you, Austin?
0: I'm getting close to retirement now, so it's from the time we're filming this, probably about seven or eight more business days till I'm d- completely done with my full-time job.
1: Holy Very shit. I didn't realize it was that close.
0: Yeah. I mean, time's been passing by really quickly. And the, the good thing is, is that the wholesaling business has also been picking up. So I don't like to really disclose the revenue, like the the assignment fees that we've been making. But let's say I have definitely two times, like in terms of revenue, we definitely more than two times my income in my full-time job. So it was a, one it was a good in. trade-off, right? Um, what are you,
1: one month or two months in?
0: Where, so technically we started the wholesaling thing in September, but I would say the beginning was putting the infrastructure together. If anyone follows me on Instagram, a lot of it was getting a CRM system set up, creating workflows, all of that basic training manual type of stuff that we, you know, that you need to do for a new business. And I would say January is when you really started kicking things off, when we started sending tons of mailers and and really marketing and doubling down on that. So yeah, I mean, it's going well there. And we're also organizing a, a meetup at rise digital meetup. We already have, I think it's like 220 people registered. Yeah. And we're going to, we're going to be
1: capping it at 300 guys. I like, even though it's a virtual event and like, in theory, there's no reason to cap it. It is still, it becomes a logistical nightmare if we have way too many people in the event. So we are capping that 300. So we haven't really advertised it too much either, but whoever oh, gets the haven't. next, <laughs> I, I posted on my Insta story, but I mean, as much as I'd love to believe that all 200 people came from me. <laughs> so anyway, so if you guys face haven't face, gotten your yeah. ticket, you, you'll probably only have another day or two to like get the last few tickets that are out there um, so make sure you guys do that.
0: Yeah. It's been less than 24 hours to a, eh? so I bet you by the time this podcast comes out, we're, we're looking at. 300 yeah. <laughs> so, um, but crazy. if you guys uh, happen to listen to this and there's still available tickets make sure to go cop it. how about you my what you've been up
1: to really just working on the flips i've got uh, two properties out in new brunswick that are closing in the next two weeks so but those are pretty much like done and good to go and then the flips we exited our belleville flip i'm not gonna say the numbers yet because it's interesting someone that listens to our podcast made an offer on the house actually okay um, did,
0: did you get the deposit though
1: yeah, least, yeah, we did. But okay, a transaction... So farm. Set, dude, Austin, you and I both know a Transaction's not done until the money hits the bank account, oh, man. Like, it's just not done. <laughs> but it, it is a heavy deposit, like 25K. So, like, it's not the end of the world if they pull mm-hmm. out. But I'm just waiting okay. to, until, like, I actually get the funds at the end of March for the money to hit the account. And then I'll, I'll share all those numbers with everyone that's interested. I do have another flip in tiny going on that one. It's interesting. We have interesting contractors on that one. And the house... It seemed that
0: you had some issues on your story that I asked you.
1: So, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what were those issues? You know what it is though, man? And th- this is my like favorite rule of thumb for real estate is almost anything, unless it's foundation can be done for like $5,000, right? Or like, less. Yeah. Yeah. Like beam needs to be replaced two grand. Like, yeah. cool. Right. Like, Oh, you've got like pest control. Like, I had a legit mold problem in that house service master who I, I don't know if I talked about this on the episode already, but service master, which is like the most expensive option quoted me five grand to do like a full mold remediation. Right. So as much as shit happens, as long as you're buying good properties with good margin, there's enough margin for error as well. Right. I, I want to quickly talk about
0: also how hot the market is, man. Oh, <laughs> Rid- Oh dude. I can't believe we didn't even start a podcast off like that. It's ridiculous. So uh, I'm part of a mastermind group, Right. And one of the wholesalers or a Canadian wholesaler, a lot of people probably know uh, who that individual is, but he put a post in there and he said that he had 313 showings for a property that he listed on the MLS. So he, he basically got it off market, cleaned it up and just listed on the MLS. Three hundred and oh, th- wow. how is that possible? dude? <laughs> and it sold. So he listed that at 299 K and I think it sold for 550 K if I'm not mistaken. And take this in. <laughs> according to his analysis, the ARB, the ARB was 550k. So this property not done up, three hundred and thirteen showings, multiple offers sold for the ARB.
1: Wow. That, look, like so on that topic, <laughs> I, like I have coaching calls with some some people and everyone's like, look, what do we do? like how do we get into the market? everyone's having the same struggle, right? Like whether you're whether you're buying wholesale deals, whether you're buying like flip projects, whether you're buying bird projects, everyone's having the exact same struggle. And you kind of have to make a bet on the market. as much as we say, you know, we don't speculate, we don't like to like think about where the market's going, focus on your numbers. You do still have to make a bet on the market, which is, are we in a bubble? Yes or no. And I'm not going to answer that for anyone. And if you think we're not in a bubble, then, then keep going forward. And if you think we are in a bubble, then maybe sometimes the best thing to do in real estate is honestly just sit back Right. Like, look at where, what's happening in the market. Like, how are you supposed to adequately assess what ARV is when numbers are all over the place? And how are you supposed to determine what market value is for a property when, you know, like things sell like hundred K over like, like nothing. Right. So,
0: and, and one thing that I do want to touch on before we introduce our guest over is, is that we need to be willing to move fast. A lot of people are just like, oh, I want to go back, run the numbers, think about it for a night come back the next day. And that's how buying a house should technically be because it's one of your biggest purchases in life. If not the biggest purchase in life, that's how the home buying process should be. But let's face it. That's not what it is. And if you play like that, you're not going to be able to get deals because deals are not something that you sit, think about for two or three days and come back. Cause by the time you come back, it's gone probably gone within the first 24 hours. (laughs) We can go on and on about how crazy the market is. But part of of this crazy market is being creative. And we know some creative people in real estate. And that's actually our guest. We're going to transition into our guests. Our guest today is Aaron and Ariana. Aaron's 28 and Ariana's 27. So they're young, hungry investors. They both dropped out of university and they came from working class families. So humble beginnings, right? Nothing was handed to them. And they really... Uh, worked as a strong team together as a couple to solidify their real estate business. So they went from working 50 to 60 hours in minimum wage jobs, working in things like restaurants to now owning over $13 million in assets under management, ridiculous. And how they were able to do that is they do quite creative strategies, right? So they do a lot of Airbnb's and they're able to more than double the revenue from the typical investor. So we talk about all of those creative strategies that they use, as well as dig into their background story on how to get into their real estate world with not that much money, just grind, hustle, and passion. So this is gonna be a phenomenal episode. If you're new to investing, you need to tune into this. And if you're experienced in investing, you're still gonna learn some creative strategies to maximize cash flow. Hey, everyone, we are with our very special guests, Aaron and Ariana. How are you guys doing? Good. good. How are you? We're not too bad. Thank you for joining us today.
1: So yeah, it's
0: a pleasure to be on.
1: So Aaron, Ariana, I think quite a few people know you guys already. You guys are are very prominent in in the real estate scene. You guys are in the Rise Facebook group all the time and just everywhere. I feel like at least I feel like that. So I don't know. But for anyone that doesn't know you, like, why don't you give everyone kind of a quick background on yourselves?
2: Yeah, absolutely.
1: So I'm 28.
2: Uh, 27.
1: And we've
3: been together for about seven years now. We both dropped out of university. We didn't really come from a family of money, and we never really got anything really handed to us. So, you know, from, from the beginning, really, we had to kind of work for everything. And we worked minimum wage jobs, you know, sometimes working two to three jobs at a time, you know, a lot of serving jobs. And eventually we saved up enough money to buy our first property. And this is a Kitchener. But, you know, ultimately mindset was the most important thing after reading Rich Dad Poor Dad. And that kind of gave us the elevation we needed to start really scaling and, you know, building up our portfolio. And today we currently control 82 units of property, real estate, and we have $13.3 million of real estate under management.
0: That's, that's phenomenal. I think our viewers really love this type of story, right? Like starting from middle-class, nothing handed to them, because that relates to a lot of people and then building up this kind of real estate empire a couple of years down the road. So let's really just dig back into the past and and, and go through that journey so our viewers can go through that journey with you. Exactly. Where did it all start? Where did it all begin? Tell us about your background and, and how you guys started to get involved in real estate.
2: Sure, absolutely. So when we first started, well, before all of that, Aaron and I, when we met, we were, we've known each other since high school and then- we reunited again when we started working at restaurants together.
3: We knew of each other in high school, right. but like I was one year older. So, it, you know, we never really spoke. Exactly. We, it was like kind of like, oh, I know that girl because I saw her in the hallway. But, mm-hmm. you know, we never had a conversation,
2: mm-hmm. you know. Exactly. And then we ended up working at a restaurant together. That was actually after I came back from university first year. I didn't decide to go back. It just wasn't the right path for me. So when I got back to, uh, to Toronto... I just started working because what else are you going to do, right? And then that's when Erin and I met again. And shortly after that, we became very good friends. We shared a lot of great communication and great conversation. We shared a lot of the same kind of values, which was great. And then shortly after we started dating.
3: And then after we started dating, like, I don't know, it was just like her and I started really clicking. And I could kind of see and envision like a future for ourselves. So that kind of gave me a new sense of purpose, you know, a real solid why. And that's when I was like, you know what, screw university, I'm going to drop out. And I dropped out in my fourth year of university. And I decided to cut my losses short. I was like, there's no point going to school for another year. That's another year of my life. That I have to invest into getting my degree that I know I'm not going to use, mm-hmm. and you know it's another year of OSAP that's you know being added to the bottom line, right? So I was already in debt, right? But I was like, you know what, screw this, I'm out. So I I, I dropped out in my fourth year, and you know I started working as well.
2: Mm-hmm. I think you only had like a semester or something left. No, when- I,
1: I had to. I had oh, wow. To, I had to left. So but I was like, was, my first semester, what, what were you studying? Like, yeah. <laughs> and yeah, what so- were you, what were you studying?
3: I was studying economics.
1: Wow. Okay. So at this point you kind of, cause it's, it's interesting that you said that, cause I think there's a lot of, like, if you look at like Graham Stefan, meet Kevin, those guys, I think, I don't think they went to university and I think they, they all kind of follow the same trajectory, but I think if you, if you, don't necessarily go to university, and you're young, and you're ambitious, and you're hungry. You like that extra four years could completely like propel you at like an exponential rate by the time you hit like 25, and everyone else is just getting started, right? So good on you guys. That's definitely a big leap of faith, though. Like, yeah. I'm just curious, like, what was your mindset? So at that time, you you dropped out of university, but like, what what was your goal at that time? Mm-hmm.
3: Well, my personal goal was, you know, what I have to create some kind of foundation for Ariana and I. So I kind of knew. Well, I had, the, I had the great fortune of actually reading Rich Dad, Poor Dad in grade eight. So ever since then, my mindset was kind of at a different angle than most people. So I always knew I wanted to get into real estate and build own my own business, but I never really knew how to get there. Yeah. You know, just having that mindset, but not really knowing the trajectory of your life, it kind of puts you in an awkward position where like, you know, you want to be somewhere, but you don't have kind of like the steps that, you know, you need to take to get there. So I was like, you know what? first of all, let's not waste any time. Let's start working. So I started working for my parents. They own a cafe in North York and they paid me minimum wage. You know, I'm thankful for that, you know, cause it's like, I didn't have to go through the whole process of job seeking. So I kind of had something that I was doing and, you know, in Ariana, well,
2: they needed the help as well, which was great. I mean, the timing worked out, obviously in the beginning, they weren't, thrilled that he was leaving university just like i think any kind of parent would feel that way yeah. but i
3: honestly thought my dad was going to kick my ass <laughs> asian, asian
0: parents yeah they're like, Korean parents, <laughs> like
3: they're like you're not going to get general. a degree like what the hell is wrong with you
2: yeah, yeah. i think the pressure of a- asian parents are is really there when it comes down to going to school and getting a degree and all of that and getting yourself a 9 to 5 kind of job or something stable So it comes to a surprise to any kind of parent to, for their, for their child to drop out of university and be in sort of like this uncertain limbo of a time. So that's kind of how we started. And then we were working those minimum wage jobs. I ended up joining Aaron at his parents cafe. And then later on, they ended up opening a beauty store as well, which I ended up managing
3: both of us. Oh, we actually started living together shortly after we started dating. She moved in with me into my parents' house. We won't go too (laughs) too deep into that. But ultimately, ultimately, you know, we both had minimum wage jobs. And, you know, we just knew that we wanted to get to a certain point. We just didn't know how to get there. Mm -hmm. So we're like, you know what, let's set a strict budget, you know, extreme reality. Austin, you're a huge proponent of that. And, you know, that's kind of like what laid the foundation for us. Mm -hmm. So I was making like two grand a month. She was making two grand a month. And we're like, hey, we got to save at least like 80% of this. Mm -hmm. I
2: mean, um, we weren't paying rent because we were, we were living with his parents. So we were, well, hold
0: on. Most people would opt to move out and start paying rent. So you guys consciously made that sacrifice, right? Uh, you made Amen. that sacrifice. Reload as long as you can. Right. Then- <laughs> Anyone who <laughs> out there the who's living
3: with their parents, <laughs> you got a great situation, milk the shit out of that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Frugality tip one one <laughs> Exactly. Frugality I mean, 101.
2: you don't get that opportunity when you're, when you get older. And I think that's when, when you are younger and you have that sort of, time where it's acceptable to be living with your parents it's a good it's a good way to minimize your expenses and really try to scale your income or grow your savings so that's basically what we did we decided that you know let's try to save as much money as we can so we really didn't spend spend much money at all we always ate at home or we'd share something if we ended up eating outside oh god yeah. i remember going to
3: restaurants and looking at the cost of beer and i was like oh my god you know <laughs> that beer is going to cost like close to 10 bucks yeah Let's just get water. <laughs> so We were
2: very frugal. We saved up the majority of our income. At the same time, we were still paying for, you know, we were still paying for our phone expenses. We were still paying for OSAP and all of those things. But essentially our living costs were very, were very little. So it was easy for us to save save money even with those minimum wage jobs.
3: And at the time, like we we're working like 50, 60 hour weeks. Mm-hmm. And when you're working that much, honestly, you don't get much of a chance to go out and spend money. Mm-hmm. So if anyone's kind of like not making the kind of money that they're looking to make, just work more. And that's going to give you, that's going to force you to save more. That's mm-hmm. So Honest, true. <laughs> very you smart don't to have it, the
2: yeah.
4: time.
3: Yeah.
2: And at that time, even then, our parents or especially my parents, they were, they were very very against what what I was doing. So at the same time, while I was working at that cafe, I was studying to become a real estate agent. And then that wasn't for me. So I ended up doing studying to become a paralegal. So I actually finished and finished the schooling for that. And the only thing that was left was taking the exam and, and becoming a paralegal. But then that's when I sort of had a reflection where I was like, this, this is exactly where it goes back to me dropping out of university in the beginning was I wasn't passionate about it. And even the fact that I was studying, studying again to do something that I didn't want to do, was because of the pressure that you feel from from your parents. Like, what are you doing? The years are going by. You're not. You're not going back to school. You're not doing anything except for working jobs. So, what's your what's your next step? What do you What do you plan on doing? And at that time, like you, I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I think that's the same with Aaron. We didn't really exactly know where where we wanted to put put our money towards, uh, what we wanted to end up doing, but.
3: Similar to me, well, she was like at ninety-five percent of the finish line, and she just decided, okay, you know what? I'm not going to take the exam, yeah. and then she just finished off her paralegal journey there.
1: So, yeah. so when you guys started doing real estate, were you passionate about real estate, or was it just? Oh yeah, hey, like the number, so number during number
3: during, during the whole, money. yeah, during the whole duration of us dating, I would consume every single thing mm-hmm. real estate li- related that I can get my hands on. So podcasts, YouTube videos, books. Like literally everything real estate related, I would just absorb. And what year was that, sorry? uh, This was when I was 22 years old, kind of like when I got my purpose. And I was like, you know what? That's kind of when Rich Dad Poor Dad kind of came back into my life from grade eight to age 22. I was like, you know what? Let's just go through the motions of school and, you know, university and do all that stuff. But it never really kind of took shape. You know what I mean? So after I turned 22 and kind of got my purpose and my why, I was like, let's go back to my roots. Let's go back to everything that I kind of started and solidified my mindset. So I reread Rich Dad Poor Dad. And then I was like, you know what? I got to get passive income and I have to invest in real estate. Mm -hmm. So that's when, you know, I started really kind of diving deep into the world of real estate, educating Mm -hmm. myself, because I realized that I have all this time until I get my nest egg to kind of start investing in real estate. Mm-hmm. So in that time, let's educate myself, you know, and put that time into really kind of solidify my knowledge and my awareness of real estate investing so that when it comes time to me actually implementing the action, I can take, you know, big steps forward.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: So I want to just lay out the landscape. So you guys dropped out of university You're working minimum wage jobs. You have a shit ton of debt trying to find your purpose. How the hell did you transition into getting into real estate? Because some people that reach out, I'm sure you guys know as well. When they reach out, they're in a, you would say even a better situation than you guys were when starting off, right? But they still don't know how to break in. So how did you guys make that transition into real estate?
3: So I would attribute a lot of the success to extreme frugality, kind of just making the most of the income we're making. So after our minimum wage jobs, we're like, you know what, frugality works. We saved up 30K, but we also have to raise the threshold of our income. So we quit working for my parents. You know, they were a little bit upset, but ultimately we are like, well, we got to raise our income. So we went back to serving at restaurants. So we were working 50 to 60 hour weeks there as well, serving at two to two to three different restaurants. And that is mostly tax-free income, you know, tips, right? Cash money. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, yeah. like combined, we're making a little bit over like ten thousand a month. Mm-hmm. You know? Wow. Almost yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly.
2: And then we were sort of flirting with real estate a little bit uh, while we were working in those restaurants. We were looking into properties in Chatham, Kent, North, North, was it North, North Bay? Bay? Yeah. yeah North Bay. That. We were actually going to see those properties too. So we were sort of flirting with the idea and we put in a couple offers. Uh, all of them got rejected. And then. No, so
3: one, actually we were like, Basically, the seller wanted like two twenty five, and we're like two twenty. But then we're like, oh, yeah. no, I don't want to like, pay that extra five thousand, yeah. so we just like we were that's screw it. We, were and really- we, we we abandoned the whole like the whole thing and just
2: exactly. Yeah. So my family and his family were aware that we were getting into the real estate world and that we were getting into becoming more interested in real estate, and we wanted to start investing. Um, and then that's when my aunt actually brought something interesting to us, which was she said she had a friend who was wanted to go back to Korea, and she had this. Ginormous house that was over five thousand square feet. It had seven bedrooms, seven bathrooms. It was a really big house. And basically, and at, sorry, at
3: this point, we're familiar with rent hacking, kind of like in, in theory. And we're also like we also stumbled upon the concept of arbitrage, mm-hmm. right? Basically, where you lease, you know, you take a property, you rent, you rent it from someone, and you rent it out at a higher value,
4: right? Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. Exactly. So we saw an opportunity there and decided that, okay, well, why don't we rent it? And then we could rent the bedrooms by room. In North York, so that's very big. We have a lot of international students here. Yeah, and at the that- time,
3: the average rent per room in Toronto was going for like at least a thousand bucks. Like it was yeah. crazy. Yeah, the
2: average was about a thousand dollars per bedroom, uh, which sounds kind of crazy, but that's the prices in Toronto. <laughs> so it started off with that. And then we decided that was a great opportunity for us to sort of get into real estate without... Putting a lot putting up a lot of capital so we ended up renting that house she was kind enough to actually be okay with it I think it was also because my my aunt's reputation and all of that came yeah. to came to help us there but and um, also um
3: that that house had seven beds seven baths and we saw potential to create three more rooms mm-hmm. on the first floor so we're thinking okay so if we take this property we rent it for 5800 bucks a month that was uh, the rental amount that we agreed upon. And then you know lease each room fifteen hundred for, for the entire house $5,800. Oh, so 5, yeah. Yeah, yeah
2: five thousand eight hundred
3: and then you know rent out each bedroom for like a thousand bucks per room that's like ten thousand a month you know minus fifty eight you're left with like forty two hundred bucks buffer in like another thousand dollars for utilities you know whatever expenses and I was thinking in my head like you know napkin math and I was like okay hey, well we should cash well theoretically like three thousand a month mm-hmm.
4: you know.
3: So we took those Damn. 10 bedrooms, we furnished everything. So it was kind of like our first deal, quote unquote, that we did was kind of like diving into a templex, essentially, right? So we furnished 10 rooms, started doing the screening process for tenants. And we got to the point where eight of the rooms were rented, but two of the biggest rooms, the ones with like jacuzzi, the jacuzzi bath, the huge like walk-in closets, those were not renting,
2: mm-hmm. right? Because
3: we wanted like 13 15
2: we wanted uh, we wanted 13 to 15 depending on how many people like if it was double occupancy it'd be 15 if it was single it'd be 13 but we couldn't lower the prices from there because then you would be level with all the other bedrooms they
3: got upset yeah
2: exactly just what it Imagine makes that sense.
3: conversation it's like how much are you renting for well, I was like, <laughs> how much are you renting for oh, Shit, me too man <laughs> okay well <laughs> your room's like yeah. twice my size got yeah. pissed you know we didn't want that going on so we're like exactly. let's let's keep our standards let's keep the rents high but it wasn't renting and we had vacancies. So we're like, okay, hey, so what do we do now? You know, we're bleeding. So, you know, at the time we had enough cash buffer to kind of like account for that. But, you know, we were kind of getting a little bit worried. So yeah. we're like, okay, hey, let's try doing something called Airbnb.
2: Yeah, That's kind of glad. Sorry, to-
0: what year was all of this? Just so I this have It was 2017, Airbnb. 2018. 2017. 2018. 2018? I think oh, 20- it was 2018 January.
2: Yeah. No, 2019, right. January. 2018, January. 2018, January. Yeah.
0: Honestly. So a lot of hustle between and then <laughs> yeah. finally let's move out. Okay, gotcha. Exactly. Yeah. yeah,
2: exactly. So, well, in between there, we we had moved out when we started working at the restaurant, when we said that we weren't going to be working at the cafe anymore. <laughs> yes. That was when Aaron and I decided to move out, really increase our income. And although we did have a rent, I still had my sister living with us as well. So... That that helped us, and so we saved a significant amount of money, I think. And then going when,
3: back to the house,
2: <laughs> yeah, going back the
3: whole to the Airbnb house. thing. Oh man! So basically, we had furnished the whole the, the rooms for you know we were catering to like the student market, so like the furniture wasn't fancy; it didn't look that great. It was like
2: really basic, cheap, bare IKEA bones,
3: like you, you know, know, no frills, you know, no <laughs> yeah. no color. Hey, you got to like. go on a budget.
2: <laughs> yeah, like, well, I mean, yeah, on a
3: budget, right? So we're like, okay, hey, so we got to repurpose this for Airbnb. So we. Dismantled all the furniture in those two rooms we refurnished with you know whole new things Mm -hmm. and then we took so we made it
2: we made it all airbnb friendly Um, i was a little bit concerned whether airbnb and room rentals were going to coincide well together or if it was going to create any more issues and yeah that was
3: another thing that we're worried about because we're worried that some of the tenants might be like what the hell's going on here (laughs)
2: like you get new people inside the house every however however many however long the reservations are right so That was so we had
3: that conversation with them too. You know, we we kind of sat down with everyone and said, Hey, listen, you know, we plan on doing Airbnb here. So, you know, Mm -hmm. you're gonna see new people in and out. Mm -hmm. Like, if anyone has any objections to this, speak up. But But surprisingly, no one had any objections. They're like, you know what? We're living in this big ass house with a whole bunch of other people. Like, we're already in a situation where we're seeing new people every day. So whatever, right? Mm -hmm. So they're cool with it. Then when we started Airbnb, at first a little bit slow to take off. But ultimately what happened was, you know, we started getting a few more bookings in, we're brand new hosts. Mm-hmm. And then after about a month, we became, or a month or two,
4: we became we, super hosts, right? So we
2: started, we put up the Airbnb in April, and then we got our super host in July. So a couple months, which is pretty quick for, in general, in terms of Airbnb and becoming super host. Generally, it takes a little bit longer, but I think having two rooms and having two listings really helped in being mm-hmm. able to get that Airbnb status quite quickly. But we had our doubts. I mean, we weren't right in the city. This is like a residential area. We weren't positive that Airbnb was going to do well. So even starting that from the beginning was a risk that we decided was, well, we had to do something, right? So it was either just wait and get a long-term tenant or try something and maybe it will work. And if it does work, then we may be looking at something much bigger, right? So, Mm -hmm. which is actually what ended up happening. So, and eventually...
3: After we got Superhost status, that's when the bookings really started rolling in, mm-hmm. and those two rooms were generating twenty five hundred a month on Airbnb mm-hmm. per room.
4: Per room. Oh, wow. Per room.
3: Oh shit. That cash flow was yeah. much more than three grand. I'll tell you exactly. that. Yeah. So then, so then, you know, before we knew it, our total revenue for the house was like over, over twelve thousand. Yeah. Twelve thousand, thirteen thousand a month. Mm-hmm. So our cash flow was like well over five thousand a month mm-hmm. just from that one property,
2: which
0: and was no down payment just. Really no,
3: first name it and furnishing there's glass and furnishing. Yeah, right. glass
2: and furnishing. Okay. And so given everything, I mean, with the monthly utilities and internet, we were looking at about seven thousand dollars in monthly expenses. Mm,
3: seven thousand a month.
2: Yeah, seven thousand dollars a month in monthly ex- expenses. So even then that was a big risk for us because there's no guarantee that you're gonna be able to get these rooms rented out. And seven thousand dollars is quite a big overhead expense yes. to have, especially when you're starting in the beginning. Mm. But That's, I think that's where Aaron and I just having each other's company and being able to support each other was a really big, was a really big aspect for us. We,
3: and I think that's kind of when we had a huge like turning point mm -hmm. and it was like, that's when our teamwork was really solidified because Mm -hmm. I realized that I was very good at like the, the concepts, like the, the big visionary, you know, the ideas. Right. And then she was like, I was not very high detail. Right. I'm kind of the guy who was like, let's, let's do this thing. And then I just walk away. (laughs) <laughs> you know what i mean and then so ariana being the perfectionist that she is she's very like high oriented mm-hmm. so she's the one who kind of like flushed out the operations and really kind of like nails down like what needs to be done and then i kind of give more of the direction on how it should be done and that's kind of like we realized that that teamwork really helped us make this property mm-hmm. a big success
2: like i think i think for me it's always it's always difficult to take that plunge just because if it doesn't work out then i would feel so guilty about it yeah. or it's just it's it was hard for me to take that plunge but for aaron it was much easier for him it was like the numbers make sense i think it makes sense for us to do it and for me it was like well the numbers do make sense and if i can make the infrastructure work then we can we can do this so mm-hmm. thankfully our airbnb did took off we did we did really really well that first summer and then pretty much consistently well all throughout that year so that was when we we decided well we should we should well
3: yeah and then so you know that that property was generating like five six grand a month and then we're still working our jobs so uh-huh. you know now we're making like 15 16, a month
0: nice.
3: that makes it a lot easier to save up so uh-huh. the next step we took was actually buying real property uh-huh. so we had saved up i think it was like Hundred fifty thousand. Well,
2: before all of that, we had started another business, which oh, was yeah. a salon business. We did, you know, permanent makeup, eyelashes, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. But like Aaron, with... Aaron, you did that too. No, that was actually more of something that it was actually Aaron's idea. And then that we opened something like that up. And it was my it, it was my efforts where we were like, okay, well, well, I'll run that business. We'll see how it goes. Mm-hmm.
3: Because again, like my concept for that business was, okay, well, if you open up a salon, right, and you, you have the space for your technicians to work in, and then let's say you take 50% of whatever fee they're charging, then essentially we don't have to be the operators. All we got to do is kind of open up that space, take care of the, the branding and the marketing, bring yeah. the leads in. And then, you know, you have your technicians doing all the work and then you know, they're, it's basically them paying you money is yeah. for me, that was like passive
1: income. You're making it passive. Yeah. And then the other approach is like you just rent out the chairs, right? Like that's, that's another
2: way that like, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. It's yeah similar like- <laughs> to a real estate
2: model. Exactly. Actually. Similar to real estate. Like the whole kind of, yeah. I guess the general outlook of it is basically kind of like real estate that well, we, for me, it was kind of like arbitrage it.
3: once more, you know, but yeah. on a business scale, on a
2: business
1: scale. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. one of my buddies is actually, he was looking at the same, like same business. So, like I ran the numbers on it. It could be very lucrative as long as you maintain like all your chairs rented and stuff. But yeah, yeah that's completely yeah. off topic.
2: <laughs> yeah. But we started that business. And then, you know, at that point I had I had quit my job. It was just too much. We we had to focus on growing the business, growing the Airbnb, and focus more on, I guess, our careers rather than just our jobs. So
3: Yeah, I mean, and then, you know, we we took that salon salon all the way to COVID. Yeah. And then, you know, March of 2020 they were talking about shutting down the city. So we're like, Oh crap. Like, what do we do with our salon? Mm -hmm. And then that's when we were kind of like forced to close down our salon and you know, we're locked down for a few months, but Mm -hmm. ultimately we, and long story short, we ended up closing down the salon for good and we decided to to liquidate.
2: Yeah. We decided to liquidate Mm -hmm. and we just went all, all in, into real estate. So I think that was a really big, a big lesson for me at least, or a big eye opener was, the it, fact was a good that it was a very good learning experience mm-hmm. but even just being so vulnerable to these government rules like when they decide to do a lockdown and then you can't operate your business anymore mm-hmm. that was a huge thing for me and that was a huge eye-opener like you have no control mm-hmm. essentially you have no control over over this anymore like you can you cannot build any more revenue because at the time we were a service business so that was really tough. It was a it was a hard decision to let go of the salon, but it was I think definitely the right decision for us.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. And then so you know we realized that basically we're we're being really busy. We're working. You know we're also self managing the the arbitrage house. Yeah. And then running a salon part time, right? Mm-hmm. So like we're busy for the sake of being busy, but we weren't really getting anywhere.
2: We weren't being productive with we our time. Being,
3: yeah. We weren't being productive with our time. So then. You know, because of COVID, we shut down the salon. And at
0: that time we had, I think,
3: 150000 I think, almost
0: $200,000 saved up. Mm-hmm. Somewhere so, in that ballpark. So, so from 2018 till COVID, it was just one, it was just your primary rent hacking and the salon business, nothing else, right?
2: So it was the primary rent hacking, like for our primary residence, yeah, our yeah. primary rent hacking. On top of that, we had that house that we rented from the other lady. Okay. So that one we actually didn't live
1: uh, in. Oh, you didn't live there?
2: No, we didn't yeah. live in okay. that one. Uh, we decided
3: to rent out something else.
2: Yeah. We decided Uh to rent out something else. And then, and then we did the salon and then we decided to To do real estate. Aaron was
1: still working at this time or did you leave as well, Aaron? Sorry. Were you still working at this time or no?
3: I was still working. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Okay. Okay. We're still both serving. Mm -hmm. So that's a pretty quick timeline to get to a hundred, 130 K in capital, just building up slowly. Right. Like that's impressive so i guess the approach of increasing your income after after you kind of achieve that frugality then you increase the top line and the spread just keeps getting bigger and bigger
3: yeah because when uh, you're making like fifteen thousand in pretty much earned in passive income and when you're rent hacking you're not paying rent out of pocket you know yeah that that, that starts adding up really quickly yeah. so you know we got to that point and we're like hey well we got to buy real estate so using our savings we bought our first duplex in kitchener this is already turnkey we're like for our first property let's not you know invest too much time do anything crazy just buy something turnkey Mm -hmm. and put on airbnb so -hmm. we put both those units on airbnb our first time actually putting entire units on airbnb and we were cash flowing i think about three thousand a month and sometimes even more than that and it was crazy not rent sorry
1: cash flow Cash cash And and in Kitchener,
0: right? So that's Fox, first of all. (laughs) Second of all, and this is during COVID, right?
1: Yeah. yeah.
0: Okay, well, shit.
3: And then this was in (laughs) April 2020. So our first property we bought in April 2020, we were generating about $6,000 a month in bookings minimum. And then we hit a peak of, I think, like, $11,000 $11,000 $11, $11, in August. Yeah. Yeah. So like that month was crazy for cashflow. Mm-hmm. I mean, our expenses were about 3000 a month. So, you know, you are bring like 10K, you're, you're taxing <laughs> 7,000 from one property. Yeah. So that was just insane. After that, we started doing a lot of JVs and kind of taking on a lot of partners. Our next property after that, we decided to partner up with someone else from Cashflow Tribe actually. And us not having the track record, we're like, you know what? Let's, let's split the down payment. Let's go 50, 50 on down payment and 50, 50 on the mortgage, right? And then let's buy a property. So that was how we got into our next property, which is the triplex in Waterloo.
2: So it was it was a lot of JVs after that, after we've done that, uh, our first property. And then we did that triplex. We did a couple more JVs and a couple more triplexes in Kitchener. And then- Oh yeah,
3: and- I want to touch upon that one. So basically at this point, we're like, okay, hey, well, we're running out of savings. We're running out of funds to mm-hmm. actually put into properties. So we got to get creative. So the next one, we kind of showcase like everything we've done. We, you know, we had 16 room rental units that were arbitraged. And they're all um, okay,
0: all Airbnb. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We had
3: two Airbnb units in Kitchener, right? And then we had a triplex under contract. So we, we approached someone who had no real estate experience, someone who kind of wanted to, you know, dive in and, you know, get a lot of cash flow. Mm-hmm. And so we kind of convinced him to get into a triplex with us. But, you know, given my short track record, he was like, well, you don't have too much experience in real estate. So why, why should I trust you? Mm-hmm. And then, you know, ultimately we had to get creative with this one. So I said, you know what, I will guarantee you a perfect bur. Mm-hmm. If it doesn't become a perfect bur, whatever equity that is remaining in the property, okay. I will split that with you 50, 50. So I will reimburse you for whatever half of the money that's left in the property. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that's kind of how I got into my second JV.
2: Like when you're, when I think when you're starting out and you don't have that track record and you want to get investors, or you want to get partners in JVs, I think it's important to just try to make it work. And yeah. it's it's not about trying to get as much as you can from that transaction or from that relationship. It's more about just make it work and creative, build that right? and build got that,
3: that agility to kind of like maneuver. Like if, if one door shuts, you got to look for another door.
4: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah and me and Austin season.
1: are both, me and Austin have both like kind of made the same concessions like early on and like ultimately, as long as everyone's happy, like, you're perfectly fine, exactly. and you're, everyone's making money together, right? And I think that's yeah. th- there's no such thing as a fixed JV model. Like the mm-hmm. JV model is constantly changing as you guys evolve. Like your first one, you gave certain concessions to, and then like on your tenth one, like mm-hmm. you're just like, hey man, this like my terms. Like, providing my term. a lot of yeah. value here, right? Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah
3: and exactly. you no, know, that's a thing. A lot of people think that a JV, like especially a lot of newbies, ask this question: is like, what does a JV mm-hmm. consist of? And then I always tell them a JV is whatever you guys agree upon. Mm-hmm. There's no cut and dry template. Like someone can give you a format of what a JV should be, but the details of what that agreement actually consists of that's between you and the partner, right? And the splits, equity splits, whatever, it's not always 50-50. It can be 60-40, 70-30, depending on the deal and the splits. You know, if someone brought the deal, someone brought the money, someone's, you know, bringing the know-how, that's, you know, you could split that 30-30 and 40 or something like that, right? So there's always different ways to make a deal work. It's a matter of being as creative as possible and kind of using the limits of, I guess, just your creativity in general to kind of like put all those pieces together and, you know, and force that into play,
1: right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. cool so then so at this point you had had i I don't know how many units i've lost track (laughs) Uh, (laughs) but and then you started so this was kind of nearing the end of 2020 this this was actually in august -hmm. August yeah Yeah. so then so you got a couple of triplexes a couple of units on airbnb how did you get to 80? Cause I'm still missing a big part of it. Yeah, yeah. So, so
3: basically we also got involved in a sixplex in London. So someone had brought the deal. They were like, okay, well, I brought the deal. I liked the fact that you're doing Airbnb. I think we can make a lot of money here. So if you can bring the, the money partner, we can split this 30, 30, and 40, 40 for the money partner, 30 for me for finding the deal. And 30 for me managing the Airbnbs and kind of like, you know, the more the active side. Right. So that's kind of how we got into the next property. We were also looking to get into fourplex in winter and that didn't pan out. But mm-hmm. it was kind of like we we're getting bombarded with deals left and right and then kind of like just like trying to find as many JVs as possible. Mm-hmm. But that's when we also stumbled upon a 20 unit building in Cambridge. Right. So do you want to touch upon that? Because I think like I, I yeah. talked about this, but at the time I was of a different mindset and you were of I a thought different
2: he was mindset. crazy. I mean, <laughs> we were doing three unit, you know. Two unit, three unit residential houses, and then all of a sudden, Aaron goes, "Let's let's look at this twenty two unit building in Cambridge, and I Yeah, thought, all the
3: properties up till now were like five hundred k, six hundred k, seven hundred k, and then yeah. it's like, mm-hmm. "I'm like, babe, I saw a property two point four million dollars. Let's go see this." And she was like, "What? <laughs> like, what do you mean? Like, I thought what do you, you mean? know, like, you're <laughs> getting
2: way ahead of yourself. Like, let's let's just you know take some time and really review this because." Mm-hmm. I was, well, I think it's obviously like I was scared going into a 22 unit building, but I was like, okay, fine. We'll go see it. I mean, what's the, what's the harm in going to go see the property? Yeah. So we ended up, we ended up seeing the property again with another partner. It has so much potential and it's really hard to ignore when you see that potential and you see, and you see, that potential that's there it's hard to ignore it and it's hard to sort of walk away from it so just to break it down
3: this this property was three commercial units on the main floor nine apartment residential on the second floor and then the third floor was a student residence so if you kind of like picture like you know laurier waterloo right you know you're back in residence and then you you have all these rooms and then you have like a common facility where it's like a common living room common washroom common shower it it was kind of like that Mm -hmm. but with covid that entire third floor was empty.
4: Mm-hmm. Right? Interesting. Okay.
3: So yeah. So then the seller was like, you know what? I- I'm bleeding here because yeah. that person was he lost out on like fifty five hundred bucks a month in rent. So this guy had a motivation to sell. So me knowing that, I'm like, hey, well, I see this space. It's all wasted. I can either turn these into Airbnb units in cash flow, or I could repurpose this entire floor. Just you know, knock down all the walls and then essentially create ten single bachelor units right? So that was kind of like where my mindset was at. And then seeing that I was like, okay, well, I see the potential. This thing can be a real cash cow and using the cap rate valuation method, right? This could potentially be worth
0: a lot, a lot more, right? Mm -hmm. Finding the highest and best use for it. Sorry? You're finding the highest and best use for the asset. Exactly. Right. Right. So I was confident that
3: I had stumbled upon a gold mine, a diamond in the rough, if you will. So I was like, I am confident that I can get investors for this, but I don't have the track record. Mm-hmm. So my next, I guess, my next course of action was to get someone with a track record that can solidify our reputation.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: So we had to get someone who had the reputation and the experience to really solidify, you know, I guess our credibility to raise money. So we reached out to a partner, uh, Thomas Lorini, yep. and that's when we partnered up. You know, I ran into the deal. We, we were speaking... We've been speaking together since like january of 2020 so we kind of had like a, an established relationship but we're like you know let's jump on a deal together right so because
2: mm-hmm.
3: you're on the sidelines you were like you're kind of like watching the whole thing so i think it's more interesting to see like what you're thinking as well yeah well
2: my major my main concern was how are we going to get this financed
1: yeah like $0.4 yeah we have vacant units
2: it's got vacant units sure. so even if you were to cl- even if we w- we are to close on this property we're going to have to there's going to be a burn rate that yeah, we're going yeah. to have to go through so and i thought we do we have enough experience to do something like this there's a lot of there's a lot of questions that go on in your head when you're dealing with something that you feel uncomfortable with so when he when he started talking with thomas Lorini and trying to make this deal work and say he was saying that basically He doesn't have the track record. He doesn't have the experience, but he's going to find someone who does have that track record. who does have that experience that's going to be able to make this deal work. So he thought, I have the deal. If I can find people to make this deal work, then we can become a part of this deal. So that was a really big, I think a huge mindset change again from there was basically.
3: So for anyone listening to this, if you don't have the credibility or track record, that can also be leveraged. Yep. just find a good enough deal.
4: Mm-hmm. Right.
3: Yeah. So I told Thomas, I said, Hey, listen, this is what I have. These are the numbers. What do you think? And he was like, Oh damn, like this is a really good deal. And so I was like, Hey, well, you know what I want to use your credibility and I want to partner with you on this. So I will take 20% of the deal. And then you take 20% we'll we'll offer our money partner 60%, you know, because it's a large property. Yep. So, you know, you can get 20% for doing Pretty much nothing right just like kind of like piggybacking me on the deal and then for the network for the network right yeah because
2: network is huge yeah. right I'm yeah. sure yeah. you guys know as well like network is is everything
3: mm-hmm. yeah and he played a really big role in raising the money as well because when we have conversations with investors you know oftentimes the first thing when you know they're interviewing you it's like well what kind of experience do you have
0: right especially like, in apartment space because exactly. now you're running raise you're money today. for an apartment right not yeah. two, two, two units three units Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like, why should I invest with you, mm-hmm. right? So then,
3: you know, we would have these conversations together. Thomas, you know, being who he is, he has an extensive portfolio yeah. in Canada, and he's living in, you know, California, right? So it's like, it's it's kind of eye opening, right? Like you have the right systems, you can make things happen. So, anyways, long story short, we went through a whole bunch of money partners, and you know, we pitched the idea to a lot of people, and eventually, we partnered up with a company called Bluevale and they had a the whole power team of, mm-hmm. you know, legal assistants, mm-hmm. finance account managers, you know, this and that. So like, that was kind of like a, a wow. nice, like, yeah, it was a good power team to work with. Um, oh, they yeah. bought the capital. They were 60% on the equity side. I got 20%, Thomas got 20% and we made that deal work. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: So, to so, so- a little bit more insight. We had this under contract since September of 2020 and we ended up closing on it on January this year 2021. So mm-hmm. it was a long it was a long time running like it took a lot of time to try to get investors investors falling in and out. So it was a tough it was a tough deal to to do but very satisfying when you get it done.
0: It's very interesting. You guys have a special skill set where highest and best use is higher potential for you guys versus a lot of other investors because you guys can forced revenue up through Airbnb, short-term rentals, right? And that seems to be kind of your game plan and strategy that you're leaning towards. So that brings me to the question, long-term rentals or short-term rentals? I already know your answer, but is there a reason why that you're leaning towards short-term rentals over long-term?
3: So that kind of question is more like an apples to oranges, you know, comparison. There's nothing really that we have against long-term rentals. We like long-term rentals because it it creates a solid foundation, but we like short-term rentals for the fact that you can really kind of push the the revenue up and the cash flow and one of the biggest things with short term rentals is the element of control mm-hmm. right as an investor you want to have control over your property you want to be able to actually like you know
2: you want to be able to have full control over your property and i yeah. think i think when you do long term rentals you sacrifice a lot of that control over to mm-hmm. the tenants because
4: mm-hmm. that's just know, what it is in ontario
2: Exactly. The landlord tenant yeah. laws aren't exactly in the landlord's favor. So with all that in consideration, we just, I, especially for me, I think control is, is a huge aspect of Airbnb. And that's why I love it so much. You know, even something like not being able to bring pets over to your place, you can't really control that. You can't really enforce that as, oh, yeah. as, as to a long-term and tenant. If a not like your unit,
3: There's literally really not much you can do. Really. Exactly. Like there's, even if you try to evict them, it's like, well, they have the freedom to do what they want. And the landlord-tenant laws are skewed in the tenant's favor. And if they're smoking your unit, there's really not much you can do to get them out just for that reason, right? Mm -hmm. But if for Airbnb, if someone's smoking in your unit, not only can you tack on additional fees for cleaning, you can effectively cancel the reservation without giving a refund.
2: There's just more recourse that you could take when you do Airbnb rather than long-term rentals and a lot less trouble that you have to deal with in case Mm -hmm. your long-term tenants end up becoming troublesome tenants. Whereas with Airbnb, you have a lot more that you can do a lot more control that you have. So that was a huge, that was a huge aspect of, of us choosing long or short-term rentals over long-term rentals. Mm -hmm. But, but that being said, I feel like it really depends on what you're looking for. Some people, if you want something very passive, if you want something that's that you really don't have to worry about day-to-day then i think long-term rentals is probably the best solution but if you if you don't mind putting in that work and if you don't mind doing a little bit more day-to-day sort of stuff then i building think that business and right? building that business because,
3: because ultimately short-term rentals is more of a business exactly long-term rentals is more of like you know kind of like a passive portfolio and I say that very lightly because like it's, it's not really passive actually for pure landlording, yeah. you know, you have to implement like property management and all that stuff. And I'm sure Austin, you're very well aware with all the units you have, you know, with your long-term tenants, it's never just like, you know, fun and roses. Right. So. Never. Uh, yeah. So yeah. let me,
1: let me ask you guys this, because I'm, I'm curious on the Airbnb side, like what are the, cause we don't, we actually haven't had anyone on the podcast. I think that does Airbnb other than Whalen back at, like early on, like what are the risks that you see on the short-term rental side? Like I've, So like me and Austin have like talked about Airbnb a lot. Like I have a unit that's literally sitting vacant right now and I I should really be starting to sell it, but like, (laughs) I'm just like toying around. with like various things. So like, is a super host status, a big risk? Like, can you just lose that? Right. Like if you get like X amount of bad reviews and like, you're just like, you're kind of screwed. Right. And like regulation, like, is that a risk? And like, like what are the risks that you guys see that maybe other people don't see or what are the risks that you think are overhyped? Like people worry about that too much.
2: So you brought up two really good points: the regulations and sorry, what was the other point that you brought up? You brought up regulations. I and, said
1: superhost status. Yeah, but. the
2: superhost status and the regulations. So those are two very good points. In terms of your superhost status, that is something that you have to maintain, and you have to take that effort to con- continuously maintain that status. There is absolutely a chance that you could lose that superhost status. But if- it's
3: all about like managing your downside risk, right? Because Ultimately, being a super host means you're maintaining top standards. Mm -hmm. And what that means is, you know, you got to make sure your property is clean and you got to make sure you are approaching this business from a service perspective. Right. Essentially, you're in the hospitality business. Right. Mm -hmm. So as a super host, you have to kind of manage and make sure that your team is working towards what you kind of envision for your business, Mm -hmm. right? So if your cleaners are not holding themselves to your standards of cleanliness, that's something that on you that you have to control, right? Mm -hmm. Something that you have to manage. So you have to make sure you set clear expectations for your employees to make sure that they're following your standards.
2: Mm -hmm. And also to be, to set those expectations with your guests as well. So be as descriptive as you can in your listings, in your rules. And I think being as thorough as possible is honestly the best way to go in terms of giving that expectation to your guests. That was a big thing
4: mm-hmm.
3: because um, a lot of people like it's really important to kind of lay that expectation up front. Let's say your listing does not have parking, right? And you don't le- you don't list that clearly in your listing, then your te- your guests are going to get there and be like, "Well, there's no parking." You know, four stars, three stars, whatever. But if you list it in in there, saying that you know there is no parking, spelled out for them then they're gonna go into with the expectation that there is no parking, right? Yeah. So kind of being upfront about the shortcomings of your listing first is very important. Yeah. It's like, you know that movie, Eight Mile, where Eminem at the last rap battle, he's like- You He, he basically, this is himself. He's like, you know, these are all my shortcomings, you know, tell me something I don't know already, right? So it's kind of like that approach. Like you, t- you got to tell your guests everything that's essentially wrong with your property or something that they're gonna be able to expect. And if you kind of lay that groundwork, they're not going to go they into fault you on it. Yeah. yeah. That, yeah. That makes they're not going to have that. anything more negative to say.
2: I think right? the biggest thing when people think between becoming an air doing Airbnb or doing long-term rentals, they think, oh, with Airbnb, well, it's just a short, uh, short-term rental. I can just put it up on Airbnb and forget about it. That's a huge flaw. Yeah, you not won't true. succeed in Airbnb if you think that way. It, it's a It's a constant, it's a business mm-hmm. that you're essentially running. So you have to look at it that way. And then, in terms of regulations, that's something that you have to look into. I, I see a lot of mistakes that that a lot of new air, uh, Airbnb hosts do is they set up an Airbnb, let's say Niagara Falls, and they don't realize that there is very strict regulations mm. that regulate Airbnb, regulate short term rentals. And if you're not aware of those those regulations, then you could be tagged on with a huge fine. So that's that comes into the due diligence part, right? of being able to do your due diligence, see what's what's available in that market and if if Airbnb is allowed in that market. For example, with Toronto Airbnbs, we were very lucky because we only did it by room. So when the regulations came into effect for Toronto, we didn't we weren't very impacted because we were only doing it by room. And if if people don't know there's you have a limit for Airbnb in Toronto. You can only do it 6 months out of the year. So it's, it's a lot of regulation. it's also
3: about being proactive with your due diligence because, mm-hmm. well, we had the opportunity of doing more Airbnbs in Toronto, but the main thing was, like, there was always that discussion of the lack of affordable housing. And there was always a talk of, you know, like a problem, you know, the city's always discussing problems. So it's like, one of the main problems that I noticed was that there were too many like ghost hotels in downtown Toronto where a lot of condos were just not being occupied by tenants and instead being used as Airbnbs. So, you
4: know,
3: if you got to kind of think long-term and realize that, okay, at some point in time, something's got to give, right? And then we heard rumors of regulations taking place in Toronto. So that's why we never kind of like, I guess, expanded here and chose Mm -hmm. to expand markets where you don't have like other third parties that are actively against Airbnb. Same thing goes for Niagara Falls. The main reason that a lot of there's regulations and strict regulations for Airbnb in Niagara Falls is because there are hotels there, right? It's a tourist attraction. And a lot of the hotels have been there for many, many decades, right? So if all of a sudden, you know, these young kids come up and, you know, list their Airbnbs, they're taking market share away from the hotels mm-hmm. and they have a strong motivation to lobby to the city and say, hey, listen, you guys got to ban this, mm-hmm. right? So in certain areas like that, like Blue Mountain too, right? Yeah. Because yeah. a lot of the accommodations there are have been there for a long time. So for Airbnbs to pop up, it takes away from those bigger businesses mm-hmm. and that's going to, you know, draw a lot of attention and backlash to mm-hmm. Airbnbs. So mm-hmm. avoid those kind of markets and instead go into markets where, they have affordable housing and there there isn't really anything detracting from you you know operating your Airbnb business there so that's why we like Kitchener Waterloo mm-hmm.
2: and mm-hmm. then in terms of other risks i mean especially with covid going on in the lockdown there's definitely you know and travel bans happening that was a big thing for for airbnb and short term rentals basically when you're doing short term rentals it's a, a lot of it depends on people who are traveling most of the time so when there's a lockdown and when there's a travel ban you'll definitely see an, a decrease in in bookings you'll get less people sh- booking for short term rentals and actually at a certain point the government of canada said that you cannot host short term stays anymore it cannot be something like you're you're doing for two nights or something and someone's just traveling over you were not allowed to do that anymore so you have to be able to adapt to that and adjust your business towards being able to Ride that wave away. Ride that wave out. So for us, we start. We started focusing more on getting long-term bookings. So bookings that were 28 a month nights long, or longer. 28 nights or longer. Majority of our bookings are looking like that now. Because at um, that
3: point, they're traveling more out of necessity than just for like pleasure. You know, it's like you can either travel for pleasure or business, and we chose, you know, necessity <laughs> and business. Right. Yeah. So well, a lot of our bookings, we noticed notice that our, our our guests are coming for either relocating for work or they're in between like sale of houses. So, you know, they sold their house, their other house is closing in like two months or whatever. And it's like, they have that period of time where they need a short term accommodation. Like that's out a necessity and that kind of demand never really goes away.
2: Mm-hmm. So that we kind of did all of our pricing strategy and everything to fit that model, to fit something where people would be booking for long-term stays, 28 days or longer. So now our bookings are usually about a month long, a lot of times even more. So two, three, four months even. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of like where we changed our business strategy too. And I think a lot of the time hosts don't adapt to that and they're constantly stuck with the whole short-term rentals. And I think that's why they end up struggling getting those bookings and struggling to ride out this wave and end up going back to long-term rentals. And that's another thing is, when we analyze deals and when we decide to do Airbnb in a property, we always think of it with the idea of if Airbnb doesn't work here, mm-hmm. and if in the chance that we have to switch back to long-term rentals, is it still going to cash flow? Mm-hmm. Is this pro- property still going to be a good deal for us? Even do if the we fundamentals
3: do... still make sense?
2: Exactly. Yeah. So, if it does make sense, and even if we were to rent it out to long-term tenants, we were still going to cash flow. Then I mean, we're That's, safe. Yeah.
1: That's probably the best way to do it. Yeah. My, myself and Austin probably haven't talked so much this episode because you guys are spitting out like basically a blueprint for anyone to kind of follow on how they can achieve the same level of success. And I think it's just been perfect. Like you guys started from the very beginning. You went through your entire story. You talked about how you guys first got started rent hacking and all the, like, all the journey up to like the apartment building at the end. And I think anyone could really follow it. So I'm just going to start directing all the people that you know, ask me, Hey, how do I get started? How do I like buy my X, Y, and Z property and like whatever circumstances episode. So I love that. Unfortunately, we're almost out of time. So I got to move on to ask you guys our rapid round question. So we did kind of talk about this a little bit already, but you know, in the next five years, if you were to talk about, you know, your real estate goals or even your personal life goals, like what, where do you guys see yourselves in five years from now?
3: Uh, Our long-term 10-year goal is to get to 1,000 units. And while that is a very lofty goal, we think with the right systems and the right power team, it's all about the mindset, right? Ultimately, your mindset is either the greatest liberator or your greatest prison, right? So, you know, kind of making sure, you got to understand that life will give you what you ask for as long as you believe in yourself and know what to look for and execute, right? Mm -hmm. So 1,000 units is our long-term goal, but getting there, in terms of lifestyle, I think you have another kind of goal that you're envisioning.
2: Well, essentially, for us, I mean, and I think for all investors, your your main goal is to become financially free, so that you can start living your life and have that freedom to be able to live the life that you've always wanted to live. And I think our main goal is, even though we we have this, you know, ambitious goal of getting to a thousand units in our as our ten year goal within getting there, we still want to be able to enjoy our lives. So I think that's a huge thing for, for any investor is we're, we're all about that grind. I mean, we love working and we love, we love real estate and we love what we do, but at the same time, it's important to take that time and still enjoy our lives, enjoy that freedom that we've been able to create for ourselves. So constantly being able, being able to grow and take things to the next level, but still enjoying your life through it is i I think that's our main goal because
3: money is cool and all but you know the ultimate reason is the the ability to have freedom Mm -hmm. right you guys have you guys have some pretty cool cars
0: so work hard play hard
2: that's another one of Aaron's goals is basically to have a huge car collection so
0: that's awesome (laughs) (laughs) and then just like (laughs) yeah yeah The second question is if you guys won $10 million and you had seven days, only seven days to spend it, what would you spend it on? You can't spend it all on real estate.
2: Oh my gosh. We can't spend it all on real estate? No.
0: Okay. Can we private lend? Shit. That's real estate
3: technically. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man. If we had to spend it, like, if, if we're glorifying hyper consumerism,
2: Aaron was spending on his cars.
3: There you go. Oh man. Oh man. No, 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 no. But we would definitely like to buy a nice house to live in. We had to spend it. I mean, that's technically real estate too. But if we're spending money, not for the purpose of investing it, I would just kind of buy a property to live in, right? Not for the
0: cash. And work. rent hack. Uh, not rent hack. And then house hack. <laughs>
3: yeah, yeah, yeah. House hack. Exactly. And then live for free. <laughs>
0: And the funny thing uh, is, real estate investors always struggle with this question: like, what? We can't spend it
3: on real estate. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you totally but, caught me off guard there. Like, I at was that point, that, it's you like, know? what?
2: What do you spend it on? I mean, I think, I think another good way to spend that ten million dollars would be to buy businesses. Mm. Yeah, that would be too. To buy businesses and that's um, you still know,
4: investing,
2: though. It, well, it's investing, but not real estate.
3: Not real estate. Yeah. Not real estate. Oh, fair point. Fair yeah, point. It's,
2: it's still investing, oh, but it's not in real estate. So I think buying businesses would be a big would be a big aspect of if we can't purchase any if we can't invest in into real estate then I think investing into businesses is a good way Mm. and then I would travel a little bit I'm not gonna lie I would I would spend that money on traveling a little bit
3: buy Pokemon cards
1: Uh, (laughs) once you get down to like actually try because I was I was doing the math with my wife and we were like okay like even if we travel for a full like a year how much are we really gonna spend and like exactly like if you budget like 100k you're like there's no way there's no way I can spend like reasonably like 100k that's I'm living in like five-star hotels everywhere I go and you just don't need that and like Mm -hmm. eating like bougie meals everywhere so (laughs) like
3: 40 grand 40 50 grand to travel the world for a whole year
2: but even you know some people think that traveling or doing any of those things or spending money on yourself is like a waste of money but when you when you travel it's also an investment to yourself too oh, yeah. because there's so much experience that you that you that you experience there and so many memories that you make and what's a life without that i mean yeah. even if you have all the money in the world i mean off topic travel- but
1: for the purpose of debate the, the only thing i say to this is that cuz like my wife's like really big on travel and like it's not like i don't enjoy travel like i do but there's always like an opportunity cost so when you spend oh, for sorry. example that when you spend that 40k at 20 years old Right versus when you spend it after you've reinvested that forty k at twenty years old and made it into a couple million at thirty five, then like you know Africa's always going to be there and like Europe's always going to be there yeah. and like that kind of thing. So yeah. I,
0: I think there are some things in life that you can't look at financially, and traveling yeah. is one of those things. Yeah. Right, it's experiential. Or, or for me, like I fall in the same boat as you guys is it, in the sense that every time I went traveling, I pulled something away from myself mm-hmm. that I didn't know before or got perspective. Exactly. Right. And, and it was, yeah, I wouldn't trade all Be the more, actually, uh, trade money for it. I was going to say, I wouldn't trade any money in the world for it, but I probably would. I'm some-
2: <laughs> not going to lie.
1: Back in 2018 yeah. or 19 or something like that, I, I made an agreement with my wife where I said for every property that we burr, we'll go on a trip. Right. And yeah. this was when like, it was like slow growth. Like I wasn't like buying like a shit ton of property or anything like that. And then like, so 2019, I did that. And then 2020, we just went apeshit because we were on COVID and like, you just keep buying real estate. There's deals everywhere. And then my wife was like, so like, how many trips do you owe me? And I'm like, well, okay. Like, I obviously can't like stick to that rule anymore. Like, this is just getting ridiculous. <laughs> uh, okay. So the final question, if you guys could have dinner with anyone dead or alive, who would it be and why? Oh man. For me, Stefan Arneu.
2: Yeah. For mm. me, Grant Cardone.
4: Wow. wow.
3: Well, for me, Stefan Arneo, I think arguably is one of the greatest minds in Canadian real estate. I'm upset that he had to, you know, pass away so, so early. early. Yeah. It would have been a great pleasure to have met him and speak with him and kind of pick his brain because yeah. I think the way he thought was truly unique yeah. and was very kind of like Robert Kiyosaki-esque, mm-hmm. if you will. And then for you, and Fran I think Cardone. reading, I think reading
2: <laughs> Stefan Arnio's books really oh, yeah. also took us mm-hmm. to the next level because it really gives you a lot more perspective, especially money, people his book, deal money, people deal and that really broke down what real estate is all about and how you can leverage all, all of those areas. Right. So that really took us to the next level. And I think that's why Aaron really, yeah, loves because Stephano if so you really much. dissect,
3: you know, the process of taking a deal from lead gen to closing, there's really three main parts, which is the deal the money and the funding, the financing, yeah. and then the infrastructure, the systems and the know-how of taking it from start to finish, right. right? So once you kind of understand how to put those pieces into play, then you become the CEO of your business, right? Because then you're the chief executive officer. Your job is to execute, not be an operator. And that's kind of like the distinction that I think people kind of get stuck on and kind of holds them back from scaling is because that they try to be the operator of everything. Mm-hmm.
2: They try to do everything,
3: yeah. basically. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and I think that- still- I, yeah, sorry. Go ahead.
1: Since no one else can see the video, like when you guys said money, people deal, quite literally all four of us were just nodding our head.
4: Yeah. That, is a book
1: that does yeah. not get enough value. Like everyone talks about Rich Dad, Porta and Rich Dad Porta is a great book on the mindset. But when you're talking about real estate investing, JBS yeah. and stuff like that, money, people deal is, uh, it's a solid book. Money,
2: exactly. people deal and OPM is, a, is another great book too.
1: Yeah. And because, you know, as, as a real estate investor,
3: you're just a professional problem solver, right? So. Uh, I think "Money People" deal "Money People" deal is a really good book that most people should read, especially if you're looking to be uh, a real estate investor and if you're if you're looking to scale.
2: Mm-hmm. And awesome. for me, Grant Cardone. Grant Cardone. I, I mean, I he's a vulgar person. I mean, like
4: he's
2: <clears throat> he's got a very big personality. He's but out there. Yeah, I mean, he's out there. But the thing is, is you can't you can't help but admire what he's done.
3: Mm-hmm. And
2: not only that, but I think a lot of the things that he says really resonate with me especially when it comes down to I think one time he was talking about a five dollar coffee and he was saying that if you can't afford that five dollar coffee like what are you doing right <laughs> and that really hit me because I was I'm such a huge proponent of fr- frugality for so many years of my life for the majority of my life I was super super frugal mm. it was always about saving more money than my personal enjoyment. exactly so that was a big thing when i heard what he said and he was saying if you can't afford a $5 coffee i mean what are you doing
3: yeah bigger problems you have
2: bigger problems and then i thought i that's that's so right i mean if i can't afford a $5 coffee i've got other issues that i got to sort through so and then it was kind of like getting outside of that scar- scarcity mindset and going into more of an abundance mindset that really changed that really changed our our entire mm-hmm. really
3: And to to expand on that point, it's not to say that, you know, frugality is not important, but I think kind of just like getting your mind out of that, you know, fixation of just always saving, 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 and not really like enjoying your life and kind of looking beyond the horizon, it kind of like limits your capacity to really grow, I think. I think the
2: big thing is like, rather than thinking about, oh, I want to get that $5 coffee, so I got to save $5 to buy that coffee. It's more about, okay, I want to buy that $5 coffee, how can I make that $5?
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, I think frugality is much more important early in your journey than later, right? And early, like you have to scrape, save so you can invest. But once you afford yourself that freedom, it doesn't matter as much. Your time is more valuable.
2: And also with frugality, I mean, it's all about being intentional about where you spend your money. And if you're not intentional, if you have really bad spending habits, then it's not going to reflect well when you start investing. So that is definitely frugality is one of the things I feel like everybody has to go through if they want to be good with money. And if they want to be financially free later, hundred mm-hmm. percent.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Guys, thank you so much. There was a lot of golden nuggets dropped there and your story is very inspirational. I've, I've chatted with you guys before, and I didn't really know your background story, but I'm truly very impressed with everything you've accomplished in such a short amount of time and with the odds pretty much stacked against you. So for any listeners who are out there are in a situation where they feel like, Oh, they're not sure how to get into real estate. It is possible right? You just got to think bigger. You got to adjust your mindset. If that's one thing we can take away from this, although there are all of these details about Airbnb, it's the mindset shift, right? That's how you guys were able to accomplish everything you have. If people want to reach out to you, chat with you, how could they do so? Instagram.
2: Yeah.
0: <laughs> Mine's at A at Baymoney.
2: Mine's at U with two eyes.
0: And we'll, we'll drop that in the show notes below so you guys can reach out to them if you guys want. And again, thank you so much for being on here. It's fantastic. It was amazing getting to hear your story. And for those of you guys who are listening to this podcast, enjoy this episode, like, share it. I don't know if you can subscribe. Like, do whatever you can to support this podcast. It's amazing <laughs> guests like Aaron and Ariana out here. And until next time, guys, invest
4: smarter and live better.